All right. Well, turn your turn with me to Mark chapter two. Today we're going to talk about man's greatest need. There is a lot of benefits of the Christian life, right? I mean, you could probably even shout some of those out. I mean, there's there's so many. Uh, but there is one thing that man absolutely needs before leaving planet Earth. And we're going to discover what that, that one thing is in a moment here. And this is a very familiar passage, but I think it's worth uh, just maybe even taking a moment, just, just asking the Lord, help me to see this with fresh eyes. Not I know it's not familiar for everybody, but to see this passage with familiar, I mean, without familiar eyes, to see it in a fresh way. Uh, because I think it's going to be incredibly encouraging to people. Uh, not only for you, but also to take this word and to give it away to people at your workplace. Because I think the whole world deals with a thing called guilt. We don't know what to do with that. Human beings don't know what to do with that. But uh, there's even whole mental institutions that are full with people that don't know how to get rid of this guilt. Uh, there's even the Mayo Clinic even says that that because of unforgiveness and because of uh, to each other on a horizontal level, but also even with because we're all made in the image of God to connect with God and relationship with God, that even even that relationship, even though they may not even know that there's even a possibility to connect with God, all of us deal with guilt. And when that weighs on the human heart, that does produce disease, sickness. And so today we're going to talk about man's greatest need. And so Mark chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to do 12 verses today, a little bit more than normal. Uh, but verse 1 here, it says, I'm going to read uh, the, the two, first two verses, titled The Mixed Crowd. When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And so you remember... Last week, we talked about the healing of the leper. And what happened was that they traded places. So Jesus was in public and he was healing people and he was casting out demons. He was preaching the gospel and the leper was in isolation. And then it switched. The man healed couldn't stay in isolation anymore because he finally realized now I can be with people and I'm fully healed. And he didn't obey God. Uh, he didn't obey Jesus by going directly to the priest and being quiet about it. So he made a ruckus and everybody started uh, following Jesus. Jesus had to go into hiding to, to a degree. Uh, and he went back to what we know is kind of the, the ministry hub. And this is where Peter lived. And so most likely it was probably Peter or Andrew's house. Uh, they were brothers. Uh, there were grown adults and Peter was married. So maybe perhaps it was one of those houses, but nobody could even get inside because Jesus was so popular by then. Everyone wanted to come to him to get healed, um, to have that benefit, which is not all bad, but that's not the primary reason why he came. And then in verse two, it says, many were gathered together so that there were no longer room, no longer room, not even near the door as he was speaking the word to them. And uh, a little later, I, I want to just kind of set the scene. There's all these people coming to get one primary thing is to get healed. This is amazing. This has never happened before. There's uh, you know, people are coming. Uh, you would too. You'd bring your grandma. You'd bring people that you knew were sick. You'd bring all these people uh, so that they could be touched by Jesus. And it said that everyone was healed. All, we established that last week, that all were healed. 
And so they had this great confidence that if they could just get their loved ones there, that they would be healed. And not only that, but we find out later that the Pharisees were present and the scribes. And so I want to just take a moment just to at least share a little bit what, who, who the Pharisees were, who the scribes were. I think that's really important. Uh, in Luke 5, 17, uh, they describe that, he describes in a little bit more detail uh, that they were present at this time. And the Pharisees were, there's about 6,000 of them. They did not exist in the Old Testament as we know it, but they came during what we call the intertestamental period. And so during that time, there was an exchange of empires. You know, you went from the Babylonians and you went then to the Medes and the Persians and the Greeks and the Seleucids and, and, and on forth all the way to the Romans. Uh, and, and at that time, uh, the Hasmoneans and then the Romans, but at that time, uh, they, they were, you know, power was switching hands and, and, uh, and, and, you know, there was no prophets in the land. And, 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 but God gave them the word of God. There was no excuse. He gave them the Old Testament. He had given them real revelation. They knew better. But during that time, their hearts became corrupted. You know, that's the same with us. That could happen over time if we're not careful. In other words, we can have all the tools in our office. We have, we have the best study Bibles, and our hearts can grow cold. And that's virtually what happened with these people. And then the scribes were more like lawyers. They were, uh, in the Jewish tradition, they, they basically understood that God gave the angels the word, and then Moses, and then and Joshua, and then Anthem, then the prophets, and then eventually it came to them, the elders, and it came to the scribes. And they would basically write down uh, the, the word of God, uh, basically uh, from, you know, Succession of, of, of different uh, Old Testament Bibles that basically, basically down to us. Today, even there are scribes that wrote the word of God and it came all the way down to us. But uh, these people, again, they were just like the Pharisees. They were hard-hearted, uh, very ritualistic, man-made laws, etc. And uh, it was a pretty dry time spiritually during the intertestamental period, but also at the time of Jesus' arrival. And so they were there. They were not there to get healed of their headache. They, they were there to watch Jesus, to trap them because they already were threatened. And again, it's interesting. Don't miss these little details in the scriptures because as you read this, you never want to point to, oh, I know some Pharisees. To ask yourself, Lord, is there any Pharisaical tendencies in me? Because I guarantee you, he be delighted to show you that. Right? It's in all of us. Every single one of us. We all have pharisaical tendencies. And you might notice that when somebody's on the rise in your friend group, they're getting a little bit more attention. And you're like, whoa, don't like that feeling. I don't like the feeling of being threatened. And that's how the Pharisees felt. They felt threatened because they were the, the leaders and the holders of the religious establishment. And you can see that in the political world today, right? You see that? I mean, that's very obvious. Uh, so they were playing a political game, so to speak. And they were like, look, this guy is not just teaching, you know, the Old Testament. <laughs> but he's claiming to be God. 
you know, that's one thing. Maybe you've had people like, you know, like that throughout the centuries. You even see that in the book of Acts. There's been people that sort of rise and then they fall. But this guy's a little different. This guy's coming in and he's demonstrating his claims with supernatural ability that, you know, we scribes and Pharisees don't have. <laughs> and so as they're talking amongst themselves, they're thinking, okay, look. If this guy continues, we're done. And that's the sort of eyes and the heart that they have. And again, as you guys are reading the Bible, I think it's really important to make sure that you pay attention to these types of details. Because it's so easy to just get to sort of what you think in your mind is the good stuff. But really the good stuff is God convicting the heart even during something so subtle as they were observing and you have to ask the question, what were they observing? Do they like what they were observing? Do you like what you're observing? What, what is in your heart? He knows the intentions of the heart. We'll get there in a moment here as, as we move along. But in verse 3, And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, they were on a like a sort of a mat or a bed, uh, makeshift bed, kind of like a stretcher, so to speak. And it took four men to probably carry this guy over to Jesus and they tried getting in the front door and they realized they couldn't do that. And so they were unable to get him. Verse 4 says they're unable to get him because of the crowd. They removed, they're unable to get him to Jesus because of the crowd. And so they removed the, the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet in which the paralytic was lying. I think it's kind of interesting. You can have, you have to imagine the scene with me for a second because it's kind of comical in a way. You know, there's one thing that I don't like when I'm teaching is distractions. Uh, and, and I'm not, you know, yeah, okay, it's okay if your baby's crying or, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> there's the nursery, you know. And, and, you know but at the, at the same time, we all don't. We all don't like distractions. And I'm trying, to, I'm trying to show you something here because as they're all gathered in this house, these guys waltz up. They didn't have like a, they didn't have a, a staircase inside the house. They had a staircase outside the house. And so as, they, as they're walking up, they're, they're going outside, they're going on top of the roof. And how the roofs were kind of made is they, they were, they're basically, the, you know, typical wooden beams. And then they had thatch and it was made of mud and debris and all these kind of different things. And then they put uh, basically kind of like uh, clay on the top. And so as you imagine, they're probably trying to find some sort of shovel or something and they're digging into this roof and Jesus is giving a sermon. And so I can imagine he's standing there because they tried, I don't know how they calculated, but Luke says they sort of calculated this, this where they can get, where they, they knew where Jesus was in the room. So they dug where Jesus was. They wanted to put him down right there. So, you know, you can imagine that there's like, as they're, and first of all, you hear the sounds. And then all of a sudden you, you, you get all the debris kind of coming down. And nobody's paying attention at this point. He's probably at a good point. Probably like, you know what? If you believe it, what in the world's going on here? And just stuff is just flying all over the place. And people are getting knocked on the head with mud and dry mud and clay and all these kinds of things. And, and uh, But, you know, one remarkable thing that you see is because he says, seeing their faith, and then he's about to say something in a moment here, but I'm going to pause. I want you guys to see the friends. It's really remarkable, isn't it? 
seeing their faith. Not just his. Not just the paralytic. I mean, he was desperate. He needed healing, there's no doubt. But those friends went through all that kind of trouble just to bring this man in. And I, I think that, you know, you, you do whatever you can to get your friends to Jesus. Do whatever you can to get your family to Jesus. It's going to be awkward. Those conversations are always awkward when you're trying to reach your family or your friends, isn't it? To bring up Jesus. And you watch your friends and your family and the world literally perishing. And you see them struggle so much with the feelings of guilt and so much pain, so much suffering, even unnecessary suffering, so much struggle. Yet these people were like, we've got to get this man to Jesus at any cost, at any cost. And I find that to be so remarkable. In fact, I find it to be so inspiring that the friends even calculated just where they needed to put this man to guarantee that he would be touched by Jesus. If only they can get to the real Jesus, to the truth, the way, the truth, and the life, this person's life would be utterly transformed. And I love what he says. He says, seeing their faith, verse 5, to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Sins. And when he meant sins, he's speaking past, present, and future. Not just what you did this morning, but, but all of your sins are forgiven. And you know, man's greatest need is to be forgiven. And really, when you think about heaven, you think about all those people in heaven right now. They're in heaven for one reason. Not because they did sin, but because every one of their sins is forgiven. And then you think about the horrific place the Bible calls hell. And the only reason why they're there is not because they've sinned, but because they did get their sins forgiven. They're in hell for all of eternity because they're being punished for the sins that they committed because they never came to Jesus to get their sins forgiven. And that really is the two destinies that we face when we die. And what is determined by that is whether your sins are forgiven. Are they truly forgiven? Are they all really wiped away? Are your accounts clean, so to speak? And you might be asking one question, how can God possibly forgive your sin if he's all just and pure and righteous? And the Bible really, you know, it, it answers that. And I want to give you, uh, in classic fashion, a lot of scripture. Because I think it's important that you don't just believe my words. 
but you believe the words of Scripture. That there's certain, there's a, in order to answer that question by the end of service, are your sins forgiven? You need to understand a few things about who God is. He's not just flippant. He doesn't just say to you, you know what, yeah, you're guilty, you know, don't worry about that, it's okay. No big deal. Jesus is never light on sin. Never. Never has been and never will be. He never just pats you on the back and says, it's okay, don't worry about that guilt. The guilt needs to be dealt with, but primarily before, before the, de- the guilt gets dealt with, you need to be forgiven. And in order to f- have the confidence that every believer needs to have about their forgiveness is we need to know who God is, that he is both just and merciful. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 says this, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands? Who forgives iniquity, transgression, sin, yet he will by no means, and listen, let's see the balance here. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Nehemiah 9, 17 and 33, you are a God of forgiveness. He had confidence to know that God is forgiving. He is gracious, he says, and compassionate, slow to anger, and he's abounding in loving kindness. Probably got that from reading the word in Exodus. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. He's reading this as if they left Persia and they came back to the land, realizing, hey, yes, God is so forgiving, but the reason why we're in this mess, the reason why we were taken with hooks in our nose to Babylon is because of our sin. And God has never been light on sin, ever. Every little, you can't, you never, you can't go, oh, that's a little sin. No, that's sin. Sin means to miss the mark. And your tiny little sin and however you grade your sins is still missing the mark. And every arrow that does not hit the bullseye, every life that does not hit the bullseye misses the mark. And everybody that misses the mark is destined to hell. That's what the Bible says. You are just in all that has come upon us. We deserved Babylon. We deserved Persia. We deserved having rulers And before the golden age of Solomon, I mean, when Israel was at its best, David told Solomon, do not run after foreign women. Do not not bring in foreign gods. What did he do? Brought it in. What do you tell your little two-year-old? Do not touch the computer keys. What do they do? Touch the computer keys. (laughs) They're born that way. We're born children of wrath, as it says in Ephesians 2. And Nehemiah says this, For you have dealt with us faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. Isn't that true? You have dealt with us faithfully. You have been gracious and compassionate. You have been slow to anger in my life. You know, one of the most terrifying things is the Bible is so clear in Hebrews 12 that it says that 
God, the loving Father, disciplines us when we sin? You know that's always coming, right? So when you sin, you know how like we kind of play the control game? We sin, and then we're like... <laughs> we're checking our tires. You know, we're like, it's good. Okay? Spouse still loves us. Checking the banking account. It's like we're... Woo! All right, I think, we, I think we escaped it. And then there's this passage. God is incredibly patient. What does that mean? You may not be disciplined right away. But it always comes. That's why when you see even... Unbelievers commit horrific crimes, and you're like, how do they get away with that? How do they get away with that? And you realize they don't. And I love what Nehemiah says. He says, you have dealt with us faithfully, rightfully, whatever comes our way. We accept God's discipline. In fact, it says you are blessed if you receive God's discipline. The unbeliever is blessed that they're stopped in their tracks. Jail is an incredible place to be in one sense. Because it's a heck of a lot better than hell, which is more permanent, which is a true life sentence. God is incredibly faithful. But we have acted wickedly. We don't deserve anything. We don't... And the other thing is, is so crazy is I'm reading this book called Remembering Death. It's a fascinating book. I don't know why I do that to myself. <laughs> but it's really a helpful book on, especially leading a church and a, pa- a pastor in a church that's very young that doesn't often think about death. And unless you're a hypochondriac like me, once in a while, you're sick. <laughs> but... You know, you can't, the, 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 the book's premise is this, that if you never think about death, the majority of Jesus's, not commands, the comforts are meaningless to us. What about John 14? He comes to prepare a place for us. We're like, oh, we're never going to die. Well, then you really don't care that he prepared a place for you. And I'm not saying be morbid and think about death all the time, but man, surely the Bible talks a heck of a lot more than America does. And we don't think about our death unless somebody dies around us, but even as this book is talking about, most people die at the what? The hospital. And you never have to deal with it. They'll take care of it. And they'll give you your loved one in a little box. You never have to really mourn. You never have to really see death. And that's not how it was in the Old Testament. That's not how it was in the New Testament. That wasn't, that's not how it was for many years. In fact, the Amish, they, <laughs> I read an article recently that the Amish just got sick of the, the idea of like quarantines and all this stuff. It's like, look, this is what we're going to do. Everybody in the room, we're all going to get COVID. We're all going to deal with this now and move on. 
Not really a bad idea, is it? It's kind of what happened to us at Family Life Group the other night. But, so, but everybody just get it now. Get it over with. I forgive the one who gave it to everybody. I forgive them. By the blood of Jesus. But, you know, I'm thankful. I can say so many things, but I'm just going to stop now. <laughs> I'm move on. Romans 2, 4 and 5 says this. Do you think lightly, lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Just think about that. God is tolerant? Mm, not in the, quite in the way that America thinks he's tolerant. The way we talk about tolerance. But he's incredibly patient, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. And kindness doesn't mean this flippant kindness like, okay, well, that's fine. I'm okay with sin. I'm okay with what you do. I'm okay if you, you know, it's not the bad stuff. I'm not, I'm okay with that. No, no, no. No, his kindness, actually, this is terrifying. It means that when you sin, that he still acts kindly to you. That he hasn't zapped you like Ananias and Sapphira on the spot and sent you to hell. That you still have life. That is unbelievable. That kind of should lead you to never do it again. That's how it works, doesn't it? That's how it's supposed to work. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God. I don't know how anybody can accuse God of being unfair. Oh, but he is unfair, but not in the same way they think. He's unfair because he lets sinners like you and me go to heaven. God upholds justice and he forgives sinners because his justice has been satisfied by Jesus Christ dying on the cross. A perfect substitute for you and me. And that should give us great rest, shouldn't it? Because we're never going to be the perfect substitute. We're never going to be the unblemished lamb. There's only one. And he already came. 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21 says this. We are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you. This is what you do in Miami. You're begging people. You're ambassadors. King. We're sent by the embassy of heaven this week. What are you begging them to do? You're tearing up roofs so that people can meet with Jesus. You're doing whatever it takes to get people to Jesus. The source of forgiveness, the source of their greatest need, and you're also saying, please be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to your father so that you might be able to talk to him. And he might be able to listen to you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God 
in him. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, when you were dead in your transgressions, that means you couldn't do anything, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, that means you have no more debt, your accounts are clean, clear. There's nothing, nothing that he's going to say on that last day about your sin. Because there was a lot of decrees that were working against us at one time, pre-Christ, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to a cross. And we know that Jesus is the only one. We're going to show how he demonstrate, demonstrated something that really was kind of impossible to prove that he would be able to even forgive sin. But I think it's interesting, and it says in Acts 13, 38 to 39, that they knew that Jesus was the only one that could actually forgive sin. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed of all things. All guilt and shame and sin, which you could not be freed by what? The law of Moses. Man. I'm telling you, if we had to choose, if you really had to choose, if God came to you and said, how would you like to be forgiven? Would you want me just to give you a free pass? Or could you do a few things to earn it? I guarantee you, everyone in this room would pick the latter. Why? Because that appeals to our pride more. We want to be able to help God get us to heaven. Right? We all do. Including me. It feels better. In fact, it feels more assuring, doesn't it? It feels a little bit more weighty, even. That little old me, sinful like me, is going to help God It's crazy. That's why we need to hear the gospel every day. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the richness of what? His grace. Which he has lavished. Love that. Lavished on you. Poured it out. It's like you do, you go to those water parks and you kind of wait for the water to kind of go back in the bucket. You wait, you wait, you wait. And that comes down. Next time you're in a water park, just stand under one of those things and you go, he's lavished his grace on you. If you like that, <laughs> then it's the first. <laughs> Sometimes I'm even in the shower and I let the water just, you know, sort of run on. It's a reminder. No, and actually, I'm kind of serious about this. I, I, actually, I actually do this. I really do. And it just kind of reminds me, as, as, the, as the, the dirt is sort of, you know, if I'm working out in the yard or something like that, it's just kind of visible. But just allowing the, the, the washing of His grace. The, the water is, is symbolic. Of, that's what baptism is. It, it, I mean, certainly water can't wash any of your sin away. I mean, that's silly. 
but His grace can. And it's just a reminder, just like baptism is a reminder, but it's a reminder of that water washing you. It's amazing. Lavished in all wisdom and insight. Acts 10, 30, uh, Acts 10 43, of, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. It's not deprived for anyone, maybe the, the only the select few, so to speak. Look, I'm not going to get into the doctrine of election and all that stuff, but I'm going to tell you something. That it is by God's grace and his sovereignty that he opens a man's heart. But I couldn't tell you how many people come up to me and say, you know, I, did I, did I, I, I've gotten this throughout the years. Did I commit the, the sin of, of, of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? And have, I, have I committed the, you know, the, the sin that leads to death? And, and you know, and I'm just so curious. I'll tell you what, if you're an unbeliever, you can give a rip about those things. If you want forgiveness, you have it. So stop doubting your forgiveness. Stop. Because I'll tell you, any non-believer who can care less about being forgiven, they're not worried about those things. But I'll tell you what, if you are dealing with that and you're like, God, I, want to, I want to know that I'm forgiven. I want to know that I'm forgiven. God's working in your heart. That is an act of God. And the way we do that is we need to recognize our sins, know that his grace is, but know that his grace is greater. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, grace, what? Abounded all the more. Grace is always greater than sin. I always have just a one-up. One-up. Just a... It's amazing. Luke 18, 13, and 14 but the tax collector standing some distance away, this is a requirement, by the way, for forgiveness, was even willing to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man, this is Jesus speaking, went to his house justified rather than the other who's saying, well, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. I'm not as much of a sinner like, as that guy is. I'm telling you, we do that all the time. Be careful that we're not pharisaical in our thinking and in our hearts. He says, this man went home justified, not like the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself before the Lord will be exalted. Now look, does that mean we play some sort of game? Like, okay, we premeditated sin, we sin, and we're like, okay, we've got to beat the chest, Gotta go do this, and then, we, and then we're gonna he's gonna exalt us, and we'll be fine. Because Paul has something for that, too, but should we just go ahead and sin so that grace may bound even more? No. I think we all have seasons, pastorally speaking. We all have seasons where we have taken advantage of God's grace. We've all had seasons where we just, we do it, we ask for forgiveness, we do it, we ask for forgiveness, we do it. By the way, that's probably the normal life of a Christian in one sense. But you know what I mean? In one sense, we do do that, don't we? 
And that way that we take advantage of God's grace because we know he's forgiven. That's not what this passage in Luke 18 is about. This person was so grieved and is still so grieved over sin. It's not just a moment of salvation, although that has to do with that. But it's that everyday life realizing, I don't like my sin. God, would you take it away? And he's saying, you know what? Because you've humbled yourself before me, I'm now exalting you and declaring that you're forgiven. John Bunyan says this. He's the one that uh, wrote many different books. Puritan age. uh, What was his his famous book? The uh, Pilgrim's Progress. No child of God sins to that degree as to make himself incapable of forgiveness. And I would be, I would encourage you to either watch, I think there's several different movies on the Pilgrim's Progress, but it's a very encouraging story of a man kind of going through this journey, carrying this massive weight of guilt. It's only fine that there's forgiveness in Christ at the end. And it's a really cool story. And I think he wrote most of it in jail. One pastor says, worst possible, what is the worst possible sin? He can't think of anything else but to kill the Son of God. Can't imagine anything worse than that. It not only embodies murder, but the most hateful, venomous, vicious rejection of God. Yet it is precisely that sin which Jesus demonstrates is forgivable. As he hangs on the cross, he looks down at those who have taken his life. Then he prays to the Father in Luke 23:34, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Even killing the Son of God is forgivable. It isn't the volume of sin that is unforgivable any more than the kind of sin. So you should be encouraged today. Don't try to even categorize any sin. All sin is worthy of death. And all sin is forgivable by Christ. J.C. Ryle says this in the 1800s, Our Lord is ready to forget, ready to receive all who come to him, however unworthy they may feel themselves. None who repent and believe are too bad to be enrolled, and I believe this is for Miami, to be enrolled in the ranks of Christ's army. All who come to him by faith are admitted, clothed, armed, trained, and finally led on to complete victory. Fear not to begin this very day. There is room for you. There's room for you in Christ's army. And another way the Bible says it, there's room for you in Christ's family. Because you are both a son and daughter, but also a soldier and an ambassador. The word forgiving, forgiving, uh, forgiving is actually kind of interesting. It means sending or driving away. I love that. Because you look at these scripture passages, Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgression from us. In other words, it's not tied to us anymore. He, he doesn't remind us, oh, but don't you remember what you did on Thursday? Yeah, yeah, you, you know, the, I know you're asking for forgiveness now, but I, I'm just, I wanted to go back to Thursday. Who does that sound like? The snake. The deceiver. 
The one who always, the accuser of the brethren, brethren right? In what is it? Revelation 12. He comes before the saints constantly accusing them day and night. That's why you sit there at night and you have a great day and you just get into bed and snuggle and you're, and you're thinking like, you're listening to the enemy's voice. Worry, fear, guilt, shame. Instead of resting on the pillow of grace. Fully confident in his forgiveness. Jeremiah 31, 34, I will forgive their iniquity. Listen. And their sin, I will remember no more. Now listen. Can God remember? Yeah. He can't. <laughs> he does remember Thursday. <laughs> he remembers everything. But what is he saying? He chooses not to remember your sin and bring it up again. He chooses to let it go because it's been put on the body of Jesus. He remembers. Micah 7.19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. But another great imagery that is. It's not here. Before you, your it's kind of like, come on, it's underneath his feet. It's an enemy that he conquered. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Do you go to the depths of the sea? When's the last time you've been there? Have you been to the lowest places of the ocean? No. Because that's where it's, in one sense, that's where it's dwelling. The, the imagery, the figurative speech, what it's meant to say is, it's out of sight. So what happens when it comes back before your sight? Can I say something funny? Okay. I was like, sometimes I, you know, juxtapose words and things like that. So, okay. Um, <laughs> this pro right here is having a ball. <laughs> but that is one way you eliminate your guilt is that you realize it's not before you anymore. And what if it naggingly comes before you every single time? You have to meditate on the scriptures. You need to know the word of God and fight it with the word. That is how we fight those nagging thoughts. Spurgeon says this, we are today accepted in the beloved, today absolved from sin, today acquitted at the bar of God. We are now pardoned. Even now our, our sins are put away and even now we stand in the sight of God accepted as though we had never been guilty. There, there is therefore no condemnation, Romans 8, 1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is not a sin in the book of God, even now against one of God's people. Who dares to lay anything against their charge? There is neither speck, nor spot, nor wrinkle, nor any such thing remaining upon any one believer in a matter of justification in the sight of, of the judge of all the earth. The great confidence. Then he goes on to say this. The joy of pardon has a voice louder than the voice of sin. God's voice speaking peace is the sweetest music an ear can hear. And I believe that as often as I transgress, 
God is more ready to forgive me than I'm ready to offend. Isn't that crazy? He's ready to forgive us even before. Even, even before we're going to sin, but even if we're ready to sin, even if we're more eager to sin, he is more eager to forgive. And for us, that's so hard to believe, isn't it? So let's move on. Verse 6. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They were right. They were right in that. God alone can forgive sin. In fact, Psalm 51, it says, Against you and you alone I have sinned and have done evil in your sight. And they were labeling him a blasphemer. And listen to this. Jesus in this passage and in many others, either he's God or he is a blasphemer. That's it. We either all waste our time or he's really God and we're in the right place. And that's ultimately what's coming up in this passage. In fact, Jehovah's Witnesses, if they would only look at this passage, they would see from this passage even, because they, they're, they're, their biggest thing, if you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, their biggest thing is that Jesus never claims to be God. Well, watch what happens in this passage. It's absolutely brilliant the way Mark puts this together. So if they ring on the door, ring the doorbell. Oh no, those are the men. Well, anyways, if you meet a, yeah, yeah, they both do it. So just be confident. Go to that door, confident. <laughs> All right. Immediately. Oh no, verse seven. Why does this man speak this way? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Verse eight. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, and that's terrifying because. God is omniscient. He knows everything, even your thoughts. Right now, what you think about this sermon? He's wondering. You're not, I might be wondering now. He's not wondering. <laughs> no. Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sin, or on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And immediately he got up, picked up his pallet, in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so let's just back up for a moment. You can only be accused of blasphemy for three things in the scriptures, and most of them come here in the Old Testament, but we see some in the New. If you spoke evil of God or evil of God's law, you could be stoned. And what happened to Stephen? You might be thinking, well, he's a Christian. He was doing the right thing. But they understood that he was twisting God's scriptures, which then he wasn't. He was pointing, he was using the Old Testament to point to Christ, but they killed him. And they also accused Paul later on, too, as well, in Acts 21, the same thing, twisting God's law, and that could end up in death. Number two, also, if you speak against God himself, and also that is punishable by death in Leviticus 24, you can read that later in your quiet time, that you, if you curse God's name, you, that is liable to, of death. Number three, Claim to possess divine authority and equality with God. 
if you stood up in that time and just said, hey, look, I'm God, then you could be killed. And they were about to do that here. But something interesting really happened. Only God, you understand what Jesus was doing? Only God, they understood, only God can forgive sin. So, if he just said out loud in the presence of all these people, your sins are forgiven, then they're thinking, oh boy, then this guy is either God and he can do this, but he has no proof of that, or he's a blasphemer and is worthy of death. And so it's interesting, God, or God the Son, Jesus, reads their minds. And in 1 Samuel 16, 7, it says that God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And in 1 Kings 8, 39, you alone, for you alone, God, know the hearts of men. There's many other scriptures that point to that. And it was good for me to at least meditate on those things, knowing that uh, then in John 22, 2 to 4, he says, he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man because he knew what was in man. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. And he knew what was in the Pharisee's heart. And so he spoke and said, guys, I know what you're discussing in your mind. Because they weren't saying this out loud. You know how terrifying that must have been? And they go even further and even accuse him and say, well, this isn't God. No way. A mind reader? A healer of the sick? Healing lame, healing lepers. And they still had a hardened heart. And now we wonder why it's a miracle that someone gets saved. You know, I think it's interesting when I was looking at this, I was like, you know, which one is harder? Is it harder to forgive sin or is it harder to tell some of the, you know, the lame person to pick up their mat and, and walk? And the reality is, is he's not trying to say which is harder because we all know that both are hard. Both are divine. Both are need, you need divine power to go heal the sick or to go tell someone that they're forgiven. You need to be God. Or have God's power to do that. But the reality is, he was trying to show them that you, there's no way possible in this passage. There's no way possible that you would that you can know for sure that if a man says you're forgiven, how do you know that? Or how do you prove that? There's no empirical proof. There's, there's no way to test that. Except for one way. So that you know that God can forgive sin, that the Son of Man can forgive sin. I want you to get up right now and walk out of this building rejoicing that you're healed. And he does. Can you imagine all those people? They're like, this guy can get rid of my guilt. This guy can get rid of my shame. This guy can get rid of my sin. He proved it. It's proof. It's not about healing. Although that's a benefit of the cross. I, I believe that. I believe we can pray for the sick and the I, I do. But look, that's not the point of this passage. It's screaming. It's, it, it's, it's in our face. Jesus can forgive your sin. When you go to Miami next week, you have to understand. There are people you're going to run into 
all day, all night, whose sins are not forgiven. And you need to tell them your greatest need is not money. Your greatest need is not to wait to 2024 so that you can cast your vote for the next president. Your greatest need is not a girlfriend, not a wife, not kids, not a house, not a dog. Your greatest need is to be forgiven. And he still does that today. A Dutch poet said this, and we're going to close here. The question is, what do we do with all this guilt? So I was reading, and I found this quote. It says, this Dutch poet said, the root of the, Man's guilt is the root of all human problems. And uh, some British psychologists also said this, that the most healing force in the world is man having the sense that his sins are forgiven. It's incredibly healing. I often wonder, you know, if there's, and there, there is, but even some of our illnesses and our lack of capacity, our emotional uh, lack of capacity in life is tied to not having a complete confidence that this God loves us and he has forgiven us and he wants a relationship with us. R.C. Sproul said this years ago. He said 25 years ago, this is, he was very young as he was starting off his ministry, a psychologist, psychiatrist actually, uh, who had a very prosperous practice in South Florida, asked him to come on his staff and he offered him a very pricely salary to join his team. And this is what he said, I do not have a degree in psychiatry, why do you want me? And he said, R.C., 95% of my clients do not need a psychiatrist, they need a priest. Because their lives are being destroyed by unresolved guilt. Playing in their minds over and over and over again. He said, do you wish that Jesus would put his hand on your head and say, by the power of his blood, through the work of his cross, your sins are forgiven. Because that's what it says in his word, doesn't it? First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess, confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But I thought it was interesting, you know, as I was thinking a little bit more about this, I don't think that there's any doubt that, you know, people receive God's forgiveness for things that they've done. You know, I mean, we've done a lot of things. And we've, whether we think things or whether we uh, called someone a name or gossiped or whatever, you know, the list is. Hundreds. But the question is, a lot of times we say, I've asked God to forgive me, but why do I still feel guilty? You ever felt like that? You like the intellectual knowledge, like, yes, you forgive sin. Yes, I understand all those things that you just said. Why doesn't it happen here? 
what's going on here in the heart? Why don't you believe the reality that he actually wipes away all of your sins, past, present, and future? And to be restored, not only in relationship with God, but even in fellowship, that's what 1 John 1, 9 is actually talking about. Because when God promises to forgive his people when they repent, he's not playing games. He says, if he forgives you, he actually really forgives you. And it is our job to sometimes even go back to God and say, God, I need forgiveness of the sin, but I also need, to for, I also need forgiveness for doubting your forgiveness. And you know what I'm actually ultimately kind of showing you here? This is all about going back to God in relationship and being honest about the feelings that you have. And stop trying to play a religious game with him. Stop trying to say, okay, if I know the Greek word, then if I go to seminary, if I know this word, if I read a book, hold on forgiveness. You know what? None of those things are going to help you. Because I've made it so plain today that your sins are forgiven. I don't know how else to make it so plain. The question is, is are you going to be able to talk to your loving father and say, I'm struggling with this guilt. And I want you to take it away. You know, and if you ask him, I guarantee he'll do it. Because you just need to be honest. It's time for us to be honest in this church. Let's not play religious games. Let's not play the intellectual game here. Okay? It's not about how much you know. You can study forgiveness from here until the day you die at 80. And never really feel forgiven. But this is why he came for all of us here to know without a shadow of a doubt that we are free. And to trust him on it. Don't overthink it. Don't Try so hard. Don't just get outside your head. God, I trust you. You said, as far as the east is from the west, you've, you've washed my sin away. You've kicked it in the ocean. Far outside of my sight. You've, you've done everything you possibly can to convince me that I'm forgiven. I trust you. And I go to bed tonight. I trust you. I get on the van to go to Miami. That I am free and forgiven. And that this is a journey. And he did promise in Philippians 1. That he started a good work and he will complete it on the day of Christ Jesus. So if you still feel like, man, there's still more improvement, he's nodding his head at you. He's saying, yes, I understand that. But you're forgiven. And continue to walk with me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your forgiveness. Thank you so much for your word that you've made it so clear. In fact, you've made it so clear in so many different passages, whether it's the prophets speaking or Moses, Jesus, Paul, Peter, John. So many books of the Bible, 66 books, just to clear over and over and over and over again. 
that we are 